Like God's people of old, we are blind when we trust our own efforts to take care of ourselves and when we fear the things of this life far more than we fear God. Jesus takes our death to himself, our blindness, our suffering, our misery. Lent calls us to look at this truth and then acknowledge and rest in the unrestrained goodness of God. Hi, this is Pastor John Edding. Thank you for listening to the Sand Hills Lutheran Ministry Podcast. Let's get to today's sermon entitled, The Unrestrained Goodness of God. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to this reading for today, uh, perhaps a somewhat unfamiliar text for us, let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Open our eyes, unstuff our ears, that we may acknowledge and rest in the unrestrained goodness of your Son's suffering, death, and resurrection on our behalf as we journey this Lenten season to the cross and beyond that to the empty tomb. Amen. Well, the the tower, uh, excuse me, the statue towered above me, about 42 feet above me in the gloom of the temple. Uh, The Greek goddess with her companion snake had crazy eyes. Uh, A tiny Nike goddess of victory was standing uh, in her upturned hand, crowning her with a wreath of victory. This giant goddess wore a golden crown, and her robes were also painted and and gilded with real gold. This was Athena, a pagan goddess standing in the Greek pantheon. Or at least it was a replica of the Greek pantheon, or Parthenon, excuse me, Parthenon that my family visited in, of all places in the Bible Belt, in Centennial Park in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, the the real Greek Parthenon is in Athens, Greece, of course. The reason why the replica stood in Nashville is a a long story uh, that started in 1897 when Tennessee wanted to market itself as the Athens of the South. So the replica wasn't a real worship center, don't worry. I wasn't there worshiping a pagan goddess. But it is amazing to me that people living maybe two millennia ago worshipped and sought goodness from this goddess. It was amazing to me because this idol that I was looking at had eyes, but it could not see. It, It had ears, but could not hear. Nevertheless, worshippers sought favor and goodness from the idol and idols like these. Now, we don't seek goodness from idols anymore, right? We live in the 21st century with science and technology and um, all the other benefits of modernity. So as impressive as it is to see a 42 feet tall golden statue of a god or goddesses or goddess, we moderns, are so far past, you know, those quaint 
myths, those superstitions and sacrifices, right? We're long past seeking goodness from idols, aren't we? Aren't we? Paul defines idolatry in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, as exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping created things rather than the creator. So, in other words, you don't need to be bowing down to a statue to have an idol. Anything created will do, even good things. So, you just worship a created thing rather than the creator. Martin Luther taught that a a person has a God, a functional God, whenever we fear and love and trust something or someone more than God. So, Israel has a problem with idolatry. Throughout its history, Israel became like the gods that it worships, and since its gods have eyes but do not see, then Israel is reduced to blindness. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord instructs the prophet to make the eyes of the people blind. Why? Well, you could call it God's poetic justice, or just justice, or judgment. You see in God's word that if you worship a God with no eyes, then you yourself will have no eyes. You will not be able to see. Concerning idols, the psalmist writes, and this is Psalm 115, uh, verse 5, they have mouths, that is idols, they have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. And then verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So, The people of God are blind to the unrestrained goodness of God from the days of Exodus. So we see this throughout the history of Israel. Um, The days of Exodus, God has been with them, but they cannot see it. Uh, Despite a, a pillar of fire and cloud, they complain about the lack of water and food. They do not trust the God who had just led them through the parted waters of the Red Sea. When they get to Canaan, they don't go in. They are afraid, even though God is ready to help them. After 40 years of wandering, they finally get to the promised land, but they do not remain faithful. They turn to the Baals and the gods of the Canaanites. God's people are blind to the unrestrained goodness of God in our reading. We too are often unaware of God's merciful goodness on our behalf, but God has something to say about this. So I invite you to turn um, into your, to your Bible, your bulletin, to the back page, uh, Isaiah chapter 42. God has something to say about this. God has a passion for his people. There's really three movements in our text for today, our reading from Isaiah chapter 42. And the first thing that we need to understand from our reading is that God is active in our lives with his unrestrained goodness. So Israel waited how many years in exile? 
70 years. 70 years of waiting in Babylon until God rescued them and and brought them back to Jerusalem. It seemed like forever. At the time of Isaiah, uh, the writing of Isaiah, God's people had to wait 700 years for the Messiah, Christ, appeared. So God appeared absent during those times of waiting. You know, the first thing that God addresses in the reading is the awareness that he appears absent. Now, God appears absent in, in, in our lives. You could say our post-enlightenment imaginations have been stunted, uh, and we have come to trust in empirical facts, you know, the only things that you can touch and see. We see he, medicine healing us, and not the God who gave us the minds to understand the microbes and develop the antibiotics and other life-prolonging treatments which we depend upon. Yet without God, none of that happens. God is active in our lives. He's moving people to the blessing and good uh, of human beings. So God has something to say about this, this idea that God is just absent. We kind of fall prey to that as well. God has a passion for his people, and uh, he says this in the text, that he is held back, but now he will act. And one thing, if you are looking at your pew Bible, you can look at verse 13, the verse right before our verse 14, where the reading starts. But let me read it for you here. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So the Lord, in, in verse 13, is a mighty warrior. But then in verse 14, the Lord takes the form and the circumstance of a woman brought instantly into the throes of labor pains. Verse 14, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Just like her, God can wait no more. The time is now. And now, right now, the time for action. God has a passion for his people. He's like a warrior king that cries out. He is like a woman giving birth and panting and writhing and crying out in love and suffering. But it is not a child that is produced, but salvation itself. Verses 13 and 14 really combine to give us a picture of our Lord. He is both merciful and mighty. He is tender and tough. He is powerful and weak. God's mighty power is made perfection in weakness, you could say, is the result of this combined picture. That sounds familiar, right? God's mighty power is made perfection in weakness. That sounds like our Lord Jesus. Now he goes on. He says that the desert will be transformed. The blind will be able to walk there. And if you look at the time of Isaiah, this would, in fact, happen the return from exile in 520 B.C., in which a Persian king, God used a Persian king, his name was Cyrus, you can look it up in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus said, you can all go home. 
And it would be people then like Esther and Nehemiah then who would then save people. God would work through them to save people and rescue the nation through things that don't look that miraculous. But God rescues them. He acts. He takes action. He is present. Okay, the second thing that we see, starting in verse uh, 16, is this idea that uh, God shows his great goodness by leading the blind because the blind cannot lead themselves. Now, our lack of imagination has rendered us blind in a way to God, and we have turned towards idolatry. And I don't see a lot of folks uh, attending the temple of Marduk these days. <laughs> that was the God of the Babylonians. But I do see, we all see, a great deal of trust and worship directed toward the false idols of health, success, and meaningful life. We're looking for all the right things, but looking for it in all the wrong places. We imagine that we can achieve this through our own effort and skill, but doctors lose their patience. Wealth cannot save us. Our attempts at meaning without God are hollow and vain. Isaiah tells us that God is shouting this at us in the world that we see around us right now. Isaiah's words speak of God's great desire to say these things. Notice what he must say, starting in verse 16. God will lead the blind in a path they do not know. The light will shine for them. The rough places made smooth. The idolater will be the one put to shame. This is what God feels he has to say. Now, God shows his great goodness by leading the blind because the blind cannot lead themselves. Now, I've not really talked about the fact that, uh, or about my time that I served in the military, U.S. military. Uh, when I served in the United States Naval Reserves, I had to pass a series of tests in order to receive my naval aviation qualification. One test took place in the swimming pool. And we practiced what would happen if you were a passenger in a helicopter crash in the ocean. Now, helicopters are top-heavy. That is, when they hit the water, they turn upside down, and then they sink. So sitting in a mock helicopter frame in the swimming pool, we practiced landing in the water, and then the frame, the helicopter frame, would turn upside down, and then you would have to escape the helicopter. It was hard to do because you had to hold your breath, and then you had to find your way out of the helicopter door. Now, I did this. I was comfortable in the water. I, I swam competitively. I was a certified scuba diver. Uh, that helped, but then they placed darkened goggles on us and repeated their scenario because the helicopter crash could happen at night, right? So. I had these darkened goggles on us. In other words, I was blind. The helicopter frame turned over in the pool. I was upside down and backwards in the water. And at one point, I'm trying to find my way out of, of uh, blinded, uh, but I couldn't find the open door. And the, you know, the panic signals were starting to come. You know, you need to breathe, you need to breathe, but you couldn't find the open door. I was close, but what does close count for? when you're underwater. Fortunately, a safety scuba diver guided me out of the wreckage. With a few pats on my shoulder, I surfaced, I found my way out the door, I surfaced and breathed the air, took off those goggles. 
Uh, I did qualify, <laughs> but this reminds me that I needed rescue because I was blind, upside down, and backwards. All people need rescue. You and I need rescue. Today in a world that seems upside down and backwards, as reasonable, reasonable people might question everything and hear now and trust the words at the end of verse 16. I do not forsake them. That's God's promise. Verse 16, I do not forsake them. God has not and does not forsake you. And he leads you. God has opened ears to hear and eyes to see, guided us by his word to lives of true meaning, true joy, eternal life. God is giving us real meaning in life by connecting us to Christ. He has made us heaven's royalty, given us eternal life. No health plan, no pension plan or legacy will ever measure up to God's great goodness to you and to me. The third thing that we see starting in verse 18 is that God's great goodness has taken our death and blindness to himself. Now this is the most shocking thing in our reading for today. Surely, uh, in, as we read verse 18, you can read into this that, yeah, we are God's foolish, blind, deaf servants, but that's not the end of this. But let's read it first. Hear you, deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. And then verse 19, who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or as blind as the servant of the Lord? Look closely at the final verses of these words from Isaiah, the servant. That's singular. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? A servant, the messenger. That's singular. The one who accomplished these things is also blind. Is he talking about Jesus? Yes. Jesus did not skim the creation, but he dove into our humanity fully. As it says in Isaiah 53, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. In the strange mystery of God rescuing his, his rebellious creation, justice was made by greatest injustice and healing came through horrible wounding. Jesus will take on blindness and deafness. He became a corpse, hanging, lifeless on that cross. His ears did not hear, his eyes did not see, he was dead. God's great goodness has taken our death and blindness to himself. And why? Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. You know, God did this for righteousness sake and to magnify his law, that is his teaching, and make it glorious. We are often unaware of God's merciful goodness on our behalf. Now, this happens all the time in life, right? Think about the times that you, that you were blind to the goodness of the discipline that you received from your parents. Only later in life, then, do you become aware and grateful for that discipline. Think of the times that a teacher or a coach pushed you and you did not appreciate it or consider it goodness on behalf of your teacher or coach, but then suddenly you become aware. There was someone helping you which you had not been aware of earlier. And although that we have been blind to God's unrestrained goodness, we rejoice at the good news and God's promise 
God says, verse 16, I will turn the darkness before them into light. He leads the blind because the blind cannot lead themselves. And like the blind man who is given sight by Jesus' mighty power and mercy, we cry out with joy. I was blind, but now I can see. God's great goodness, a goodness that knows no limits, has taken your death and blindness into himself in Christ. Praise the one who breaks the darkness, who sets the prisoner free, and who leads the blind. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.